Aspiring entrepreneurs are often told that to launch a business, you must go all in, devoting every resource and moment to making it work. While this advice can be inspiring, it can also make it difficult to maintain a work-life balance. As an entrepreneur and the former CEO of Cliff Bar, Cheryl O'Loughlin has experienced both the highs and the lows of the startup world. Cheryl's other career highlights include being the co-founder and CEO of Plum Organics, executive director at the Center for Entrepreneurial Studies at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and she's currently CEO of Rebel Super Herb Beverages. This is a group of people that get you, and so join one of these groups. Or if, if that doesn't feel right, create your own group, or just find a group of entrepreneurs that you connect with. And it's so important to share what's real, to be yourself, and be vulnerable. Her latest book, Killing It, An Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Head Without Losing Your Heart, offers insight into how to grow a company without sacrificing your personal growth. In this illuminating discussion, Cheryl shared insights from her 25-year career as a serial entrepreneur and operational leader, illuminating the tools entrepreneurs need to start their own game-changing enterprises and thrive, both in the office and at home. Please enjoy our conversation with Cheryl O'Loughlin. listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the Social University. We are the Grad School for Life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. Oh, thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Great. And um, perhaps we should just start with what's going on right now with, with congratulations on getting Killing It out there. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the inspiration that what brought you to, to pull this together for the entrepreneur community. Yeah, well, the story really came as an arc over time in terms of the experiences that I had in my career. And so... You know, one of the things I want to say before starting, because this is really what connects the book together, and I'll tell you the story of it, is that entrepreneurship is a crazy ride. How many people here are entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs or even entrepreneurial in bigger companies? It's a crazy ride. Uh, You know, there's so many ups and downs. And what... I realized through my experiences that I'll share with you is that you don't hear a lot of that. What you hear about is the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and 90 to 99% of companies fail from the traditional uh, sense of the word. And there are big ups and downs that come with just this thing that many times you have your net worth locked up in and many times you have your identity locked up in. And so what did I wanted to bring to light in this book is something that we don't talk about as entrepreneurs. Because we're out there, right? All the time saying, 
everything's great. And then that's followed quickly by, and will you, will you join my company or will you fund me or will you buy my product? So we're so busy selling and, you know, I admit you have to believe in your vision and be optimistic about it, especially in the beginning because no one else will want to come with you on this journey when you have really nothing, nothing to show. But there's got to be a place to be able to say, a group of people to talk to, to say, you know what, I'm worried, I'm scared, I've not sleeping, I feel like I'm falling apart, and it's really hard to go from that selling mode to this get real mode, but we need it badly, and, and what I celebrate is the fact that you guys are doing this, you have this community to come together um, and just, you know, find your peeps and connect with them and share what's real, and so I wanted to write a book that brought to light some of the stuff that even the media won't talk about, They're, everyone's talking about the financial success. I wanted to talk about what it's really like to be part of entrepreneurship, and I get really vulnerable in the book. And and I mean, I think that's a, a, a critical issue. And again, uh, you know, as I guess as a member of the media, we are a little bit guilty of 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 talking about what is you know everybody wants to be a unicorn, everybody wants to be you know everybody wants to be Mark Zuckerberg. Um, but in your book, you I mean you talk about what you know the characteristics of what make or what go into being a successful entrepreneur. And they're maybe not the things that everybody thinks of uh, if they, you know, do a random Google search about wanting to become an entrepreneur. I mean, maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on that. I mean, what are some of those issues? Can I come about this in a very roundabout way sure. and talk a little bit about the story of, of what happened throughout my career? And I think that will help, to lead to what I, I believe is the new definition of success we need to think about embracing as entrepreneurs. So feel free to interrupt me because this will be, I've had a long career. 20 years is being nice. It's unfortunately longer than that. Um, so I have a long story to share. So I, I had been working for multinational corporations in, in marketing, and I had really learned as a marketer that, or at least at the time, this was the conventional wisdom, that you've got to really separate yourself. You, you have to look at the data to understand the consumer. You can't, you have to be objective in everything you do. And God forbid, I was actually told I wanted to work on Gatorade, and I was told, do not tell them in the interview that you're an athlete or else they will never hire you. So, you know, I, that's what I learned. And I, you know, decided that I wanted to learn how to run a business. And I was running on the Chicago waterfront one day and my buddy and I handed me my first cliff bar. And I was like, yeah, this is, you know, this is pretty good. This is not a sticky taffy kind of thing. And lo and behold, literally three days later, I saw this ad in my business school um, newsletter to help join, join Cliff Bar and help them build the brand management function. So I walked into the interview in 1997, and I walked into this very different world. It, I, I walk into the building and here dogs greeted me at the do door. There were bikes hanging on the wall. I literally can't find any people. So I walk to the back of the building and there's this ginormous climbing wall. And in front of it 
is the whole entire company participating in a stretching class. And Gary Erickson, the co-founder and now owner of Cliff Bar, jumps up with his four-year-old daughter. And he brings me over to his office and he sits her right on his lap. And he starts asking me questions. And I was amazed. You know, here was this guy who's this company owner, but he was talking to me as an athlete, as a baker, as a husband, as a dad, and I was entranced. So I joined the company and, you know, Gary started to teach me about, you know, the fact that he started the company out of his passion for being an athlete. And he taught me to dig deep. He taught me to dig deep into myself, to connect with myself. And here this was so different from everything I had learned. And, you know, I started realizing, well, I love cliff bars, but I only use them if I'm in a hardcore workout. I wanted something that would really help me as a, you know, f uh, female and as an active person and something that would really empower me because at the time the bars were all about men and power. And so I connected with other women at Cliff Bar and they felt the same way. So we introduced Luna Bar and in three years it became a th uh, $70 million business with like virtually no support behind it because we didn't have any money. and. What happened was we opened up a huge amount of pent-up demand by women who felt locked out of the, this male-dominated category. And what I learned from that is to bring passion into my work. And, and I mean, the, the I, I mean, and, <clears throat> excuse me, I hear uh, this going both ways sometimes when people talk about, you know, do what you love. And there's sort of a cliche around that too sometimes. Yeah. Um and I happen to believe in a little bit more strongly. Um, but the, the idea that, uh, you know, if you work on the thing that is your passion, you'll never work a day in your life. I'm like, well, I don't know. There's still a lot of hard work that goes into it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but is there, is there a challenge of uh, what if you burn out on that passion by doing it? So that's where the story continues on. And, you know, I had, again, a wonderful experience at Cliff Bar. Like, Gary taught me the whole idea. He walked away from multiple million dollars to keep his company. It was literally was, we were going to sell it because all the competitors got bought out. Got bought out, and he couldn't do it because he wanted to do so much more with his company in terms of helping to do good with his company. And at the time, you're hearing it more now, but at the time, that was very unusual. And you got the honor of being CEO and operationalizing this vision. And it's like, oh my God, people move mountains when they have purpose behind their work. So this will go to your question. So I st started, I spun out a cliff bar to start this company called Plum Organics. Um, it's about nourishing kids from the high chair to the lunchbox. People know Plum or have kids and use Plum with their kids. Cool. So I co-founded this company with this um, guy named Neil Grimmer, who is a brilliant product innovator and branding guy. And we worked our butts off. We, you know, everything from sweeping the floor to open office space to, you know, to selling our product to retailers and, and everything in between, Sell, make, creating a big vision. And then I started to experience these ups and these downs. Everything from, you know, the ops, like yeah, have an investor agree to fund us 
to having a key retailer take on our product to most, most important things, seeing a baby eating our product to huge downs, huge downs, like an investor we had been cultivating for months and months and months, <coughs> thinking he or she were, was going to fund the company for only them to all of a sudden stop returning our calls, to uh, having product issues, which inevitably happens in the beginning of a startup, to employee challenges. And I was going up and down and, you know, I whipsaw it every single day. And then it got worse. So at the same time, my husband decided to start a company and it was called. Because what's better than one startup? Yeah, you got to do two at one time. Go all in. So I don't know what we were thinking at the time, but it was a great concept. It, It was this it was called Blue Sky Family Club. And it was this indoor play space where kids could go and exercise and be creative and eat healthy food. And parents could relax with a glass of wine or a beer. And parents drooled over the concept. Everyone we talked to. Patrick, my husband, was in love with it. I was in love with the concept, too. And I was really in love, mostly in love with Patrick. And I didn't want to be another naysayer. So, you know, and we thought, we thought, you know, he, we self-funded this company with every penny we had, took on tons of debt, But our thought was, well, at least we'd have more control of the company, of our destiny. Well, I had a VC-backed company (laughs) that we had less control. So we thought we had the perfect balanced portfolio. So what happened was um, Blue Sky crashed and burned so fast it would make your head spin. And I'll always remember the day Patrick came home and... He was literally, this is the most optimistic guy on the planet, but he was white as a ghost and cold to the touch. And I kept saying to him, Patrick, what's wrong? And it felt like hours before he would answer me. Maybe it was minutes. I have still to this day have no idea. And I asked him actually years later, why was it so hard for you to tell me what was going on? And he said, because I knew... As soon as I said something, our lives would change forever. And we went, uh, we lost every penny we had. We almost went personally bankrupt. Uh, we, it was eight years later, just this past, just this past year that we ended up paying off the last of our SBA loan. And, uh, it was really hard. Patrick couldn't get out of bed in the morning. He would hold me really, couldn't sleep for literally for three months. He couldn't sleep. He had to go to the Stanford sleep clinic and he would hold me so hard. So I couldn't, he didn't want me to leave. And I had to get up to go to my startup and I was worried about him. And I was worried about the kids. They did I everything from the little things. Did I pack their lunches? to what was, you know, our stress that was inevitably going to affect them. What was that doing to them? And I was worried about Plum. You know, I had a really toxic investor who was a playground bully and who would keep us guessing as to what mood he was going to be in. And he would yell at us. That's how he thought that was that would inspire great work. And so what I did is I decided to run. And... And I ran some more. 
And then my day wasn't complete unless I ran. And then I had to run at least as much as the day before, and I was always pushing myself to run more. And then I started to eat a little less, and my friends and family started to say, you know, you're losing some weight. And, you know, as a woman, I was like, oh, that's cool. And then they were saying, uh, well, you're starting to lose a lot of weight. Well, you're starting to lose too much weight. Not, I was seeing the numbers going down in the scale. And, you know, at the time, probably subconscious me, I was like, I, this is something I can control. The rest of my life is out of control. But this I can control. I can be perfect at it. And I think you know where the story is going. I developed anorexia. And what I realized is in coming back in recovery is there's a light and a dark in entrepreneurship. And they are both on the spectrum of the same exact coin. On the one side, there's the light, which is, you know, we are persistent and hardworking. We get shit done. That's what makes us great at what we do, right? But go over to the dark side of those same traits, obsession and depression. And we were talking earlier about the study. Right. Right. You want me? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, So there was a study. I told you I'm a talker. (laughs) (laughs) You have to, you have to kind of squeeze in there. And, uh, (laughs) um, so there's a study that was done by a Dr. Michael Freeman. Very interesting study was called entrepreneur on fire. It's the first of its kind study. He's from UCSF and also teaches at Cal Berkeley and is actually a therapist. And he, what he found out is that there is a direct correlation between entrepreneurs and, and illnesses like manic depression, depression, ADHD, drug abuse, literally to the point that 72% of the entrepreneurial pop has these things compared to 40% of the general pop. And you, you guys hear about it. You hear about divorce. You hear about alcoholism and even suicide, um, especially in the Valley. And, you know, what I, what I began to realize is we don't talk about this stuff. I mean, it, there is a real sort of, um, you know, uh, identity of uh, or stereotype or cliche, whatever you want to call yeah. it, of success, of what people would consider to be success yeah. out here. Um, I mean, in a lot of... Uh, in a lot of other professions that don't have anything to do with Silicon Valley, um, those hidden mental health issues are often uh, are, are often a significant uh, are, are a big deal. Uh, the culture of the Valley probably doesn't um, lend itself to discovering that. So, I mean, I mean, you were talking about that before. What is that? How do you break that cycle of? Hey, this is okay to talk about, or hey, this is okay to, you know, what do you, what do you have to do? Who do you have to surround yourself with? What do you have to tackle it? Yeah, I think this is really important. And I talk about um, connecting with your tribe and sharing what's real. And, you know, I think of a tribe as football players, football fans that are together and they're like either high fiving each other or consoling each other, but they get each other. 
or, you know, new parents where you're with a group of new parents and with one look, you can tell someone else you've got spit up on your shirt. And uh, what we forget is entrepreneurs are a tribe too. And we're a tribe because we get it, but we have to be willing to connect to share what's real. And so what I honor is groups like this and groups like, you guys probably have heard of the Young Presidents Organization and Entrepreneurs Organization, my old alma mater, Vistage. And this is a group of people that just get you because they're, 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 they're going through it. And I, you know, I use the great tribesman test, tribesperson test, I should say. Um, that is, can you cry with these people? And I'm, I'm, I am not talking about a woman or a man thing. There, there were plenty of tears shed by men in my Vistage group because these are people <coughs> that get you and they're there to support you and they're, they're not your board members, your investors, your employees, or even your significant other. And we can talk later about how important it is to share with a significant other, but for people who, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a husband who's been a, an entrepreneur, but this is a group of people that get you. And so join one of these groups. Or if, if that doesn't feel right, create your own group. Or just find a group of entrepreneurs that you connect with. And it's so important to share what's real, to be yourself, and be vulnerable. And I am not saying, I'm not going to be here to tell you, be vulnerable with everybody. It, it doesn't work that way. Um, there's certain people that you can't be vulnerable with. But I'll tell you, once you've come to be able to embrace your self-worth in your company, it becomes a lot easier to be vulnerable. And to me, that is what creates a great leader. It's a combination of bold, bold and humility. And, and that's a very challenging thing. I got to think for a lot of people um, in any of you here who are aspiring to a leadership role or wherever you are um, to want to do that. I mean, I know in my own uh, career, having worked yeah. in sort of, you know, very aggressive lines of work in finance or something that, you know, you, you were bonused on how much you would cry on a trading floor typically. Um, but, uh, you might be bonused for making other people cry if I remember, but, uh, it, it, I, you touched on something there about, you know, creating that, um, uh, that, that circle of, of that circle of support, amongst your fellow entrepreneurs, but just as important as you're touching on, you know, what do you do to um, unplug from that? Because you really do have to unplug from it at some point too, right? I mean, it's work-life balance is a, yeah. a kind of a cliche, I guess, yeah. but um, you know, what, you know, what do you have to, what else is important in that? Yeah. Oh, sure. Quick story. Cause I got a lot of stories. <laughs> um, quick story on that. So when I, um, after I had, I'd left Plum because I, I just needed to detox, um, given everything that I'd been through. And I really, quite frankly, at the end of the day, felt like it was best for me and best for the company. And we could talk about learning when it's time to let go. Um, and it's much more fun if it's your choice <laughs> than if it's someone else telling you it's time to let go. And um, 
I went to work for Stanford, and you know, it's just a dream I had of working for a university um, at some point. And then Plum Sold, so we moved to Santa Rosa in the middle of wine country. And, you know, here I was just, I wanted to just soak in being a part of a very different, different pace of culture. And I wanted to just be on boards and teach entrepreneurship. But, you know, at the time, I, I didn't have, I wasn't going to a day-to-day -day job. So I kind of, I, I didn't have a title on my card and I didn't have, day-to-day -day job to say I'm going through, and I felt a little lost. So, as any good Jew would, I joined the local Unitarian Church, and I joined the support group for of women. And I walk into this group, and, you know, it's this, this dimly lit, well-worn room, and I, I introduced myself to all these people, and they were all these women in their, you know, 70s and beyond, and they were a really warm, welcoming group of people. And as we sat down to introduce ourselves, the women would share how they were caring for an ailing husband or helping a dying parent, or they were puttering in the garden or volunteering at the church. And so I sit up straight. I start talking about the accomplishments on my resume, waiting for them to be impressed. They all just kind of looked at me. and kind of took a breath and I regrouped and I realized these women didn't want to see me as Cheryl, the co-founder of Blum or Cheryl, the, you know, the CEO of Cliff Bar. They didn't care. Well, what they wanted to see me as was Cheryl, the loving daughter and mother and, and wife and friend and, you know, a grunge rock lover and, a, you know, avid reader and a camper and a Chardonnay lover and, you know, all of a sudden I was like, I looked back at him and I said, you know what, I'm just starting trying to find myself. And this wise woman sat next to me and said, I don't know if we can solve it for you, but we can be here to listen. And, you know, I, I realized then I, I was and still am somebody who's very passionate about life, who loves holding hands with my husband who loves having philosophical discussions. We were talking about that earlier with my friends. And I think you and I have a lot of common in that standpoint. And what I, you know, I realize is how important to separate, to, you know, to separate yourself from your work and look at your whole entire ecosystem to know who you are. And I, you know, quite frankly, I think work-life balance is kind of bullshit. It's, it's not... It, We've got to walk away from perfect because all this pressure to be perfect uh, is is killing us in the process. You know, it's, that's why I wrote a book called Killing It. We're killing it to be successful and find balance, but we're killing ourselves in the process. And we need to understand all the important aspects of our lives for us as people and learn how to constantly readjust. And if we're too far one way to... Figure out how to adjust back to the other way. And I mean, I think that uh, I, looking around, I think the audience skews a little bit younger than me. You or I, least. maybe? Yeah, you or me. <laughs> I wasn't going to say you and I, but yeah, me. Well, Let's I'm just right go with me. With you, man. Uh, you, uh, you know, you'll probably find, you know, your career trajectory is not what you thought it was going to be when you, uh, um, when you got yeah. out of college. 
and that's perfectly fine. Um, yeah. You're going to discover a lot of things about uh, a lot of aspects of yourselves when that happens. Yes. And I think that for entre- nobody really sort of goes to college and says, I'm going to found a organic food company, I think, right? Uh, it's, now it's, they're starting to believe well, that. And, and that may not be the best thing either, right? right. Because it's, uh, it, it, but I see um, when you, uh, when you pick, you know, whatever your next move is, um, wherever you are right now, um, how that, uh, maybe you're actually doing that out of a, a, a appeal to some, whatever, maybe work-life balance is the cliche, but uh, is it, you know, something, it, are you listening to something internally that says, hey, maybe this is the direction I should be going in? Are you, it, it's, is it a process to sort of find what it is you want to do? Yeah, I think that's really important. And it's like, uh, you and I both know it's a path that kind of goes like this and winds around. I, I, in the beginning, when I went to college, I wanted to be a psychologist. I was raised by a single mom, and I was really into, you know, helping people heal from hurt. And I, that was what I was going to dedicate my life to. And so my mom, you know, called me one day, and, you know, I was quite fortunate that she paid for my um, undergrad, but you know, she, she told me, I've got to, you've got to find a job because I'm not going to pay for graduate school. And here I was raised by a single mom. We didn't have a ton of money. Um, I'm not going to make it out that we were in dire straits, but it was hard and every dollar mattered. And I was terrified of going, having lots of debt. And for those of you who women here, um, you ever heard of the bag lady syndrome? Bag lady syndrome is for some reason in our somehow connected in our soul university as women, we are really afraid of having no money and being dependent on anyone. And so I was like, oh, I got to figure something out. So I went to business school and I thought, I am doing a deal with the devil. I Business is so selfish. How could I possibly go into this? And in fact, this is a true, true story. My friend, my best friend in college was my, I mean, in growing up was my next door neighbor. And we were both into all these issues of social justice together. And she went to Michigan State. I went to Michigan. And I, so I called, she called me up one day and she said, so have you chosen a major? And I said, yeah, you know, I chose business. And literally, she said, shame on you, and hung <laughs> up on me. We didn't talk until 15 years later when she went into business as a, as a, a so social So she finally worker. went over the other side. Yeah, so she went on the other side, got her PhD, and ended up going into business. But, you know, that leads to how amazing it was when I found purpose in my work. Um, but your, your path will be circuitous and you, you've got to just find along the way what feels right and learn from people around you. It's, you know, it's sometimes hard to be self-reflective, but when you connect with people, you know, people that really understand you, they can reflect back to you if you're willing to listen about what, what maybe you're doing that it's kind of taking you down the wrong path and what you need to do to find yourself again. And I, I mean, I, I know that there's a lot of, uh, uh, I know you discussed it in your book as well, but, uh, there's a lot of talk about, um, uh, about mentorship 
um, these days. And it seems to me that there's a lot more, um, I guess, emphasis on that. Maybe that's the best way to say it or, or, or sort of more articulated in like, you know, how do you go about that process? Um, you know, for me, my own personal, uh, experience, uh, picking mentors wound up being sort of very haphazard. Um, and you know, I had, well, have one great mentor who has literally built and sold the same company three times to three different banks, uh, but he has maintained a level of joyfulness about that. When you hear that people are trying, when they know, I know they're attracted. It was like, Oh, he's been very successful. Like, well, that's not the thing that makes him interesting uh, to me. Uh, clearly he has a lot of insight in that too. Is that, something i mean again particularly maybe talking to this audience um what is it you you should be looking for again we're a little bit back to the community idea again but you know what you know what should you be looking for in a mentor or what should a mentor be looking for from you you know it's it's interesting that you share that story because in the beginning when i was looking to mentors and this was not a bad path to go down in the beginning i would connect with a lot of people when i worked at um quaker in brand management, I would talk to a number of different people, just go to lunch with them. And I would eventually find someone that I clicked with. And I would literally just say to them, Hey, you know, I, I, I really enjoy talking to you. I'd love to talk to you more. Would you be willing to have, you know, lunch with me every once in a while and over time and just kind of say, you know, I'd, I'd love to develop more of an ongoing mentor relationship and not being afraid to do that. But to your point, that was based on that person's accomplishments. And I find mentors throughout your whole career never stop. And I'll tell you, two of the greatest mentors, actually three of the greatest mentors in my career, was Gary at Cliff Bar. And Gary was willing to be so vulnerable with me. It taught me the importance of vulnerability. And here's this guy that was so powerful. He's an athlete, and he built this great company. But he just would share so openly what the hard things that he was going through. And it was a mutual relationship in that way. Um, a professor I worked with at Stanford was just an amazing person. He he was, you know, about 75. God only knows how years old. But... He had so much to share about life and not just about career. And then now I have the gift. And this is, I, I, I literally, it's such a wonderful thing. It almost brings tears to my eyes when I talk about it. Given that I did have a toxic investor, um, I learned my lesson. And what, one of my lead investor from this last round is actually this guy whose name is Dwayne Primovich. And he has, he started a fund called Bigger. Boulder Brands Investment, Boulder Investment Group Reprise is what it's called. And Dwayne, he's on my board. He's my investor. But I talk to Dwayne every week, not because he cares if I do that. He, he doesn't tell me to do that. It's because he adds so much value to my life when I talk to him. And it's everything from work-related issues to kind of get his input on, on things to the other day. I, I want you to, this, this conversation still blows me away. And I think there's many more investors that are now coming to be, although I still think he's pretty friggin' special. 
he, I, I had just sold the board into my whole, you know, 2017 plan on the numbers and I'm selling like we know how to do as entrepreneurs. And, you know, Dwayne's part of the board. And all of a sudden after I did that, I, I was like, I don't feel good about the number that I just sold in. I spent all this time selling in. So I called him up and I said, hey, man, I got to talk to you and I'm going to get really vulnerable with you right now. And I need you to just talk through this with me. I want to be able to just process with you. I'm not in decision mode. I'm here in learning mode and learning what's inside of me and what you're thinking. So we talked through everything, everything I was feeling, why I was feeling that way. And by the end of it, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I said, based on this conversation, here's what I want to go. I actually went back to the board and resold them on a new number. But more importantly than that, as I said at the end of the conversation, I said, thank you, Dwayne, for letting me be so vulnerable and supporting me along the way. And you know what he said to me? Instead of just saying, okay, great, he said, thank you, Cheryl. You being vulnerable makes me be vulnerable, makes me better at my job as an investor, better at my job as a board member. And he said, you and I are going to go out to the world to prove there is a very different kind of relationship to be had between an entrepreneur and an investor. And this, it's amazing. That's a real mentor. And and that's a real, um, you know, because everybody hears what the path is to success again here in Silicon Valley, if you have an idea. Um, and, and I mean, and I, um, uh, you know, you see a lot of great um, ideas or, or, or um, startups that start with a, uh, a, a real, you know, social impact concept and, and that wind up, you know, pivoting uh, many times to something that makes an investor or that um, that is meant to impress an investor. Um, and so that's rare to actually um, find an investor who is that enlightened. Uh, and, and so I mean, maybe, you know, given, you know, your background, maybe you could talk a little bit about <laughs> what kind of investors did you have to get through to finally beat him? Uh, and uh, you know, what, kind of what is that? Uh, what makes for a good investor? Maybe I guess is the way to think yeah. of it. Well, or, or what else other than uh, other than uh, Gary being so great? Yeah, you know, I think what what's hard is that now with social good being right. such an important thing that's said, there are many investors now that will tell you that that's what they're in it for, but then you find out that they don't support that that point of view along the way, you know, and that they have a very different style of working with you. That That's an interesting side effect, but still they want, you know, the real bottom line. Yeah, exactly. And, and that they, um, and that they, they're again, the methodology that I learned the hard way of yelling at you or not, you know, keeping you guessing as to what kind of mood they're in because it gives them power. And, I, you know, I, I learned that the hard way. And, you know, I also, the other thing I learned was that my investors and my board members didn't even understand the industry that I was in. And so I'd get so pulled away by chasing these things because everyone wants to add value. 
but I'd get chased away to do these things that weren't actually at the end of the day adding value to the company. And it was, it was maddening. And, you know, let me tell you, I'd like to tell you a little bit about Rebel because there's something about this company that is attracting the right investors and there's more and more in them and it's attracting the right people. So does anyone know Rebel? Have you seen it? Yay, more and more people, more and more. I hope you uh, learn about it over time. So and you can find it at like Whole Foods and, and Oliver's and some, some places, natural food retailers and more and more retailers. But what the story behind Rebel, which is the social mission story, is that we were actually started by a nonprofit. And this nonprofit is called Not For Sale. And their whole mission is to eradicate modern day human trafficking. Believe it or not, this affects 30 million people around the world, 80% women and girls. And so what this nonprofit did is they brought this think tank together. And it was people, everyone, everywhere from an agronomist to an investor to actually a major league baseball player. And what they boldly said to this group of people in this think tank is they said, we are going to support whatever idea is the best idea. And they, that, that's what we will do. So they took a big risk because they didn't know what would come out of this thing. And they ended up deciding to support this idea, which was an idea at the time, and we, we pivoted a little bit from this, what uh, uh, was a smart tea. And the idea was to use the herbs native to that area. This was in Peru, the Peruvian Amazon, that they were trying to solve the issue in. Um, and... So they said they decided to buy these herbs from the local community, the indigenous people there. And the idea being, if they could help to provide a livelihood for these people, they would no longer be vulnerable to trafficking. And so to this day, and then I'll actually tell you what Rebel is, to this day, this nonprofit Not For Sale, Dave Bestone, who um, is the executive director and founder of Not For Sale, he sits on our board. So that is something that is seeped into our company, and every investor signing on needs to know that. We give 2.5% of our net sales, so every purchase of every bottle, 2.5% of that sale goes to Not For Sale to help them in their work to rehabilitate people who've been through trafficking and... It's, uh, we work with our growers to make sure we're helping them to gain a livelihood so they're never vulnerable to trafficking in the first place. So it's, we're working it downstream and upstream. And Rebel also um, is a company that it's the super herb beverage. It's a coconut milk elixir, all plant-based. And many of you are knowing more and more how important it is to try to eat, uh, eat closer to the earth. Uh, that's what's going to help us feed more people in the long run. And, and there's a lot of evidence that it's healthier not to be, you don't have to be vegetarian, but to eat more as an omnivore. And um, there's these, soup, these super herbs in it, everything from turmeric. I mean, we're in San Francisco, so probably a ton of you know what turmeric is, you know, with its anti-inflammatory and <laughs> antioxidant properties, but also these adaptogens. Have pe people heard of maca and reishi? Yay, people are nodding, you know, in this area. And ashwagandha, which these are uh, herbs from ancient wisdom, but 
they are, ashwagandha, for example, there's tons of clinical research that shows that it actually helps your body to adapt to stress. So if you're overstressed, it will bring you down. And if you're understressed, it will, you know, give you, give you energy. And so this is, you know, it's a very healthful product. And most importantly, Paulo Hawken, our chief innovation officer and co-founder, is a brilliant product innovator. I tried to uh, hire him over at Plum. And he makes exquisite tasting products because we know that the only way to get people to come into this lifestyle is to make it yummy. Um, so we have, this is the basis of our company. And every investor come, comes in knows this is what we stand for, and we're actually in the process of becoming a B Corp. Do people know what a B Corp is? Yeah, does everybody know what the uh, BSR? Great. Great. Awesome. Okay. So it's, it's in a nutshell, there's C Corps. Now there's four benefit corporations. Plum, Plum was also one. Where your bottom line, and now, thank God, there's laws all around the country, including California, including Delaware, where most companies get incorporated, that you literally can go to court and sue if your share, your investors and shareholders decide to just sell based on profit alone and not taking these other things into consideration. So our investors come in knowing this is a deal. So it's starting to, and, you know, employees that join our company, it's almost like a filter. People start dropping out as they learn more and more about what your commitment is and I absolutely, I quiz them as much as they quiz me. I look at references as long, as much as they're looking res, references for me to know they believe this in their heart and soul. And, and then that's a real, um, uh, that is something that has changed greatly in maybe the last, um, you know, eight years or so. Um, the, the idea of, um, um, you, uh, I was writing about B Corps before and oh, having done a lot of stuff around green and clean tech where it was kind of all put in this box of like, okay, that's great. You're saving the world. Good for you. I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, no, there's actually, um, there can be a profit motive to it as well, but there is, there's a lot of great innovation that comes out of that. So much. So. Uh, when you stop thinking about it in terms of, you know, that's sort of eye rolling that used to happen with it a lot. And, uh, you know, the, the, um, the B Corp initiative is one of those things that have changed that. There's a lot of other organizations out there and I would suggest anybody go and, and take a look at that too, but that will also help you make decisions about what you want to invest in and where you want to work and, and, you know, what makes a real, um, what, what's the real benefit to yourself and your greater community. Um, that sounds like what you guys are, are t I mean, and that's, you know, great that you came out of, you know, because Cliff Bar was kind of innovative on that front too. And, and when you did Rebel, but it's, it, it, is it much less of an uphill battle now maybe than perhaps it was in the, uh, or is it still an ecosystem that is, wants you to be the third Uber? <laughs> Not that with the food company. Um, you know, it's what, there's some things that I learned along the way, a lot of things. And one of, the, one of the things that I think is so important that has helped me, you know, a number of things, but I no longer equate the ups and downs of, of the company with my self-worth. I thought before every time my P&L went down, I was a failure. I was letting everybody down. And 
I, it took me down. I mean, it almost literally, literally killed me. And I realized that I, you've got to separate. You've got to know that your self-worth is not your company worth. You will go way beyond your company, way, way beyond it. We need to separate. And it's hard sometimes because you do feel that pressure. I still feel that pressure. And I find myself some days feeling drawn to it like, oh, shit, what am I doing? Oh, my God, I'm a failure. But what? I stop myself. I say, you know what? I know better. Breathe through it. And you know what's really important in that is connecting with the people that mean so much in my life. You know, as entrepreneurs and as other professionals that, you know, we want to dig in, you want to work all the time. And believe me, I understand it. But, and that's the first thing you want to do is lock out the world because you just got to get stuff done. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life. And our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.